0: Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at christfellowshipnc.org. Well, if you would, turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And we will be covering the entire chapter again. And so let me read chapter 12 for us. And then as we do every week, we will take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So 1 Samuel chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you and I am old and gray and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you and is anointed as witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. And Samuel said to the people, the Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt, and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt, and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, we have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbabel and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, You said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and The Lord sent thunder and rain that day and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel and all the people said to Samuel, pray for your servants to the Lord, your God, that we may not die for we have added to all our sins, this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the mercy and the grace you have shown us in Jesus. It is already evident to us this morning. You have already been patient with us, even as we were reminded last week, your mercies are new to us every morning because we sin every morning. We need the outpouring of your grace and mercy. And you have been so kind to us to bring us here this morning, to gather together with your people, to pray together, to sing and proclaim truth together in song, and to hear scripture read together and to hear your word preached together, these are all good gifts from you. And we acknowledge and confess that we deserve none of it. And we are thankful that even though we are not a deserving people, you are a kind, gracious, benevolent Father. And so Father, we once again plead with you and ask you to be at work in us this morning through the truth of your word. Father, you have, we know, promised to do that, that your word will not return to you empty, that your word through the power of your spirit who graciously dwells in us, you will change us. And so we pray that you would do that very thing. Father, I pray that First Samuel chapter 12 would help us to, to know what to do when we fail you and how to move forward in obedience for the glory of your name. Father, we, we need to hear this this morning. And so I pray that you would help us so that we would not listen to the lies of the enemy And then instead, we would listen to the truth of your word and that we would be your useful servants for our good and for your glory. So Father, we ask you to do more than we could ask or think among us for our good and for your glory. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what do we do with our sin? How do we move forward with God when we have sinned against God? How do we move forward with God when we have sinned against God? How do we serve God when it seems that we have angered God? These are the kinds of questions that Israel was surely asking as we enter into 1 Samuel chapter 12. It's clear Samuel has told them over and over again that they acted wickedly in asking for a king. They should not have done so. It was an expression of faithlessness to ask for a king. And yet at the end of chapter 11, we saw that Samuel says to them in verse 14 of chapter 11, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. And of course, that actually presses a question upon them. And it presses that question upon us. How can they renew the kingdom when they've rejected the God to whose kingdom it belongs, right? They've rejected him. So how do they move forward to serve him? How can it be renewed? Ultimately, these are the same questions we should be asking in our own lives. When we sin against the Lord, what should we do so that we can be restored to him? In a sense, how do we renew the kingdom in our own lives when we act in sinful ways? What ought we do in those moments? This is a really important question for us to deal with this morning. Because the reality is, if we're being honest, is we all experience guilt and shame. We have all sinned before the Lord. And so the question is not, have you dealt with your sin? But how have you dealt with your sin? Because here's the reality. All of us, all of us develop certain coping mechanisms to deal with our sin. We all deal with our sin. The question is, how do we deal with it? There's all kinds of ways that people in a worldly way deal with their sin and deal with the guilt and shame they feel with they sin when they sin. They might and we do this too, by the way, we we might blame our sin on someone else. It's your fault that I'm angry, right? We we blame our sin on other people. We might numb ourselves to our feelings of guilt and shame through substance abuse or distraction. You might just convince yourself in your own heart or by listening to others that what you did wasn't really that bad after all. It wasn't really sinful in the first place. And so you don't just, you just don't need to worry about it. Others may pursue therapy or behavior modification in hopes that they won't repeat their actions, thinking that somehow if they can get it right moving forward, it pays for the sin and their wickedness and the rebellion of their past. And some just try, simply try to forget what they did and move on and pretend like it never happened in the first place. But here's the problem. None of those deal with the actual issue at hand. When we sin, we are guilty before the living and holy God. And none of those things do away with that guilt. And therefore, none of those things ultimately help us return to the Lord So just as the people are wondering, as they stand with Samuel before the Lord, and they're asking, how does this happen? How can we renew the kingdom in our lives after we have sinned against the living God? What do we do with our wickedness and rebellion? And Samuel's speech to the people gives us a blueprint for how the Lord wants us to respond when we are turning away from our sin and turning toward the Lord. It's a blueprint for how we are to move forward in obedience, even when we have to acknowledge the sin of our past? What is it that God wants from us? So I think 1 Samuel chapter 12 gives us what I would call five steps, though I'm very hesitant to use the word steps because these are not in any particular order. This is not a five-step program for dealing with sin. That's not what I'm talking about this morning, but it's it's five steps, five principles that you need to keep in mind when you are turning away from sin and turning toward the Lord in obedience to him so that the kingdom of God is renewed in your heart. So here they are. Here are the, what I'm calling steps. But again, understand what I mean by that. Number one, we need to listen to trustworthy leaders. Listen to trustworthy leaders. Number two, remember God's faithfulness. Number three, acknowledge your sin. Number four, follow the Lord in obedience. And number five, fear the Lord. Now, just as a heads up, typically when we preach through books of the Bible, when we preach through passages, we kind of just tackle the passage in order. But 1 Samuel 12 lends itself better to a more thematic approach. And so we're going to be jumping around a bit within chapter 12 because these truths are scattered throughout the chapter. And so just as a heads up, there's not like a particular section for each of these things. We we see these truths throughout the entire passage. And so I just want to make you aware of that. But Let's begin by looking at this first way that we are to respond to sin in our life. This first step of returning to the Lord when we're struggling with sin. And that is that we need to listen to trustworthy leaders. So look there again at verses 1 through 6. We will start there in verses 1 through 6. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. And now, behold, the king walks before you. And I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you for my youth until this day. So here, Samuel setting up an intentional contrast between him and the king. It is a transition period from the time of the judges to the time of the kings. Notice even the tense of the word walk that Samuel uses in verse 2. The king walks present tense right now before you, but then later he says, I have walked past tense. Not that Samuel's removing himself from spiritual leadership, but it is an indication that there's a transition happening here from the time of the judges in which Samuel finds himself into the time of the monarchy and the kingship that's established under Saul moving forward. But again, I don't want to at all indicate that somehow Samuel is relinquishing his spiritual leadership responsibility. That is not what he's doing. That is the opposite of what he's doing. He is very much owning his responsibility to lead God's people spiritually. But Samuel also knows that God's people, these particular people, have a lot of reasons not to trust spiritual leaders. We've seen it in 1 Samuel already, so just as a reminder, we saw early in 1 Samuel the corruption of Eli, the high priest, and his sons, and how they abused and manipulated God's people. When they would come to bring the sacrifices, they would would essentially steal the sacrifices from the people to take it for themselves, and they ate of of the meat. They, they didn't sacrifice as they ought to. They robbed God's people for their own gain. And not only that, it also says that Eli's sons slept with women at the, at the gate of the tabernacle where the sacrifices were being made. These were wicked, evil men who were holding positions of spiritual leadership over God's people. And so they certainly would have had trust issues with those who were leading but it wasn't just that even Samuel's sons themselves were evil. For Samuel chapter 8 verses 1 through 3 says this about Samuel's sons. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. So essentially it seems that every spiritual leader among God's people in this place, in this time, with the exception of Samuel, were evil, wicked, self-serving, manipulative men who perverted justice. And yet Samuel is going to stand before them and proclaim God's truth to them. And so Samuel wants to establish that he can be trusted. Because listen, here's the reality. When we are struggling with sin, when we are held captive by struggling with sin and guilt and shame, and we desire to do away with those things and to turn to the Lord and to walk in obedience to the Lord. We need leaders that we can trust in those moments. Because when you are walking through that in your life, you are in a vulnerable position. And church history is littered with men who took advantage of people who were caught in sin and shame and used those people for their own gain. So we need pastors, men, leaders that we can trust, whose voices we can listen to, whose voices will guide us of how to deal with our sin and are willing to speak truth to us. And Samuel knows this and he knows it because of the, the, the wickedness and the deception and the manipulation that surrounded him in his day. And so he wants to be sure that the people of God see his integrity and love for them. And so he simply makes this argument in verses one through six. It says, look, Look, have I, have I taken anything from you? Have I defrauded you? Have I accepted a bribe so that I'm blinded to justice, so that I'm persuaded or swayed by money instead of what is true and right? Have I done any of these things against you? And the people agree with him and say, no, you, you Samuel, have not done that to us. You are a man of integrity. You are a man we can listen to and we can trust And in this particular situation, not only does Samuel appeal to his integrity, he also even appeals to the miraculous. He he gives a miraculous confirmation of what he is saying. We see that in verses 16 to 18. He says to the people, now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? Now you may be thinking, why does he bother to tell us that it's wheat harvest today? What does that have to do with anything? was significant because that tells us what time of year it was. And in this place, in this geographic location, at this time of year when the wheat harvest would have been happening, rain would have been exceedingly rare. Exceedingly rare. Almost as rare as actually getting snow in North Carolina, right? In Raleigh, anyway. It's beginning to fill. But no, way more rare than that, right? It just didn't happen. It just didn't happen. He says, look, is it not wheat harvest? But yet, even though it's wheat harvest, Watch what is going to happen. I will call upon the Lord, that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. In other words, he's saying, If you don't trust me, that I am I a rebuke of you and asking for a king then you can trust me because God will send a sign. And God does, in fact, do that and sends the thunder and the rain. And therefore, the people tremble before the Lord and before Samuel because he has shown that Samuel has the authority to speak truth to them and to rebuke them. Now, this does not mean that you should demand a miraculous sign from your pastors. (laughs) I'm not going to call down rain on your head right now. That's not the application of this passage. That would be an unfair burden to place on someone. And the reason for that is twofold. One, this is a unique time in history. This is the establishment of the monarchy. It's a significant event in the history of the world, of the the monarchy of God's people. It's a significant event in the history of the world. It's a significant event in the history of God's people. And so we should expect this kind of miraculous confirmation to come from God. That's not unexpected. But furthermore, and perhaps even more importantly, we don't need to rely on miraculous signs today to confirm what someone is saying to you because we have the truth of God's word. And if what they are saying to you comes from God's word, you can trust them. If what they are saying to you does not come from God's word, guess what? You shouldn't trust them. That's the standard. That's what we have today. And that is more than sufficient and more than enough. But here in Samuel's day, he has shown his integrity. Therefore, the people can trust him. It is with the miraculous supernatural sign. He has shown that he can be trusted. But not only that, not only that, he also wants the people to see that he deeply cares for them. You see this in verse 23. He says, moreover, as for me, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good In the right way. So why does Samuel say it would be sinful for him to not pray for them? Why why he's going to continue to commit himself to instruct them in the good and right way? Why is it that he is committed to God's people? Well, back up and look at verse 22. He reminds the people in verse 22 that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. In other words, Samuel is saying, the reason it would be sinful for me to stop praying for you, the reason why I'm not going to give up on you, the reason why I'm going to keep instructing you in the good and right way is because God has not given up on you. Because God has set you apart. Because God has not forsaken you. And Samuel is saying, if he has not forsaken you, how dare I forsake you? It would be sinful for me to forsake that which God has not Forsaken. You see, Samuel's love and care for the people is not about how good they are, how much they love Samuel. In fact, Samuel had every reason in the world to feel rejected by God's people because he wasn't enough and they asked for a king. But Samuel's point is it's not about how you've treated me. It's not about how good you are. What it's about is how much God loves you and his commitment to you. And if he is committed to you and if he refuses to forsake you, then I will not forsake you either. Listen, this should be no different in the church today. The church is the bride of Christ. Therefore, those who lead the church ought to love the church because we ought to love what God loves. We ought to love what Jesus loves. And so, Lord willing, we as elders love you, church, because God loves you. And that is what should drive us. That is what should sustain us And you should see that in us. And if you don't see that in us, then you should question us. We desperately need elders, pastors in the church who can be trusted with the souls of God's people when they are at their most vulnerable, when they want to know, what do I do with my sin? How do I move forward? How do I restore my relationship, my fellowship with the Lord? This is one of the reasons why Jesus warned us of the wolves who would come in, sheep's clothing to deceive his people, to lead them astray. It is typically the wolves and sheep's clothing that are taking advantage of people who are struggling with sin, either excusing it away or holding it over their head in condemnation so that they can manipulate them. But it's also our own hearts that we need to be aware of. This is why Paul gave us the warning of First Timothy 4, 3 and 4 that says this, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You see, your temptation will be, brothers and sisters, when you are caught in sin, you will be tempted to find someone who will tell you what you want to hear. And I'm not saying that simply because I've observed it. I'm saying it because God's word tells us that we will be tempted in that way. It's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but you're going to gather up what you want to hear. And there's no time that is more, that that's more likely to happen than when you're struggling with sin and ready to do away with it and turn to the Lord. Therefore, what we need most when we are dealing with sin and have a desire to turn back to the Lord is someone who loves us enough to speak the truth to us to proclaim God's word to us even if that truth is hard to hear, even if that truth hurts, even if that truth is difficult. We need someone who will faithfully point us back to God's truth and God's faithfulness and who will fix our eyes on things above. So once Samuel has established that he's that guy, he's the trustworthy guy, he's the man of integrity who loves God's people because God loves his people, He says, therefore, you can listen to me. And so then he says, you need to remember God's faithfulness to you. You see that in verse 7? He tells the people to stand still. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. This, this phrase stand still. It's a, it's a court of law language. Stand before me, right? Stand here and listen to all that God has done for you. Now listen, just to be clear, I think there are two reasons that Samuel wants them to remember his faithfulness. One, of course, he simply wants us, he wants The people of Israel, God desires for us to remember God's track record of grace and mercy to his people. That's certainly what he desires. But it is also true that Samuel wants them to remember God's faithfulness so that they can see the darkness of their sin in contrast to the light of his unfailing faithfulness to his people. And so, you see, seeing and remembering that contrast, as we're going to see later when we talk about acknowledging our sin equips us to more effectively fight against sin in the future. So for both of those reasons, Samuel wants God's people to remember his faithfulness to them. And so he begins there in verse 8 by recounting how he sent Moses and Aaron to deliver them out of Egypt, right? Overwhelming, miraculous reality where he sent the plagues upon the Egyptians He rescued his people from them. They handed all their stuff. The Egyptians handed all their stuff over to God's people. He rescued them, brought them out. He uh, protected them with a a pillar of a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He didn't allow Pharaoh's army to approach them. He protected them overnight while he divided and parted the waters of the Red Sea, and he led them safely through the dry land of the Red Sea and allowed the waters to come crashing down on Pharaoh's army and wipe them out. And even though the people ended up rebelling and sinning and not doing what they ought to have done, he makes them, he does bring punishment and makes them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But even then he sustains them and he keeps them and he's kind to them. He doesn't wipe them out. And, and finally the next generation rises up and Joshua leads them in, they march around Jericho and they shout at the walls and the walls come tumbling down and they find victory and they're there in the land. And, and yet in spite of all that God did for them, all of these miraculous works, what does verse nine say? But they forgot the Lord, their God. Now, just as a quick aside, this is just a reminder of how quickly God's truth can get lost from one generation to the next. I think sometimes we just assume the next generation is going to know and believe what we know and believe. But it only takes one lazy generation of failing to disciple the next generation for that generation to forget what the Lord has done. And they forgot the Lord. And so therefore he, he sold them. God sold them into the hand of their enemy, Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor. He sold them into the hand of the Philistines. He sold them into the hand of the king of Moab. And, And those nations fought against them. And yet, even though they had sinned, even though they forgot the Lord, what does verse ten say? They cried out to the Lord. They confessed their sin before the Lord. We have sinned. We have forsaken the Lord. We have served false gods, the bells and the astroth. So, Father, deliver us. God, deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And so, what does God do? Does He turn His back on them? He says no. Does He say no? I'm done with you, you rebels. No. What does He do when they cry out to Him? He rescues them. He sends the judges over and over and over again. He sends Jerubbabel, which is another name for Gideon. And he sends Barak and he sends Jephthah and even sends Samuel. And he delivers them out of the hand of their enemies on every side. And over and over again, he's done this. He's been faithful to his people and they lived in safety. And yet even so, verse 12, when Nahash, as we saw last week in chapter 11, when Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, threatens God's people, they don't cry out to him. Instead, they asked for a human king. They said, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord God was already your king. (laughs) They rejected him, even though he had been faithful to them, even though he had proven over and over again his faithfulness to them. But Samuel says, you need to remember that God is faithful. He is merciful. He has proven it over and over and over again. We see this in verse 22 when he reminds them that the Lord will not forsake his people for his great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. You belong to God. He is not going to forsake you. You are his. The glory of his name is at stake, people. Therefore, he says in verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. In other words, Samuel is saying to God's people, when you're tempted to think that God has given up on you, when you're tempted to run away from him instead of running toward him because you think there's no way he's going to show mercy again this time, Samuel says, remember, he's always ready to pour out mercy on the repentant, the humble child pleading for mercy. He's proven it time and time and time again throughout history. Just consider what great things he has done. Listen, this is no less true for us See, our temptation when we sin is to hide our sin. Our temptation is to run in the opposite direction of Jesus, like Adam and Eve, going and hiding in the garden, trying to keep ourselves from him. I think there's just no way he can forgive me. There's no way he can forgive me again. And what God says to us, what Samuel is saying to us in 1 Samuel chapter 12, when you are tempted to listen to the lies of Satan, that you are beyond the reach of the forgiveness and mercy of God, just remember his faithfulness and consider what great things he has done. And there is perhaps no greater recounting of that than Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He who did not spare his own son. This is Paul in Romans saying to you, if you think, that God is giving up on you, that he's ready to throw you out and be done with you because your sin is too far. He says, no, he didn't even spare his son for you. Do you think he's going to withhold any good thing that you need to be with him for all eternity if he gave you Jesus? No, he has given you the most generous, unthinkable gift conceivable. He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us. So how is he not going to graciously give us all that we need Paul is saying to us, what Samuel is saying to God's people, as you think on, reflect on what God has done, when you consider what great things he has done for us, when we consider the cross, know that he is not done with you. He is not giving up on you when you sin and rebel against him. And when you struggle to believe that, Romans 8.32 says, just look to the cross He did not send Jesus to die in vain. Jesus didn't lay down his life so that God would condemn sinners who come to him in repentance and faith. No, he laid down his life so that you could be forgiven. The cross itself is the evidence that God is ready to forgive you, restore you, and renew his kingdom in your heart. One of the ways this is commonly said is just to simply preach the gospel to yourself. Remind yourself of what God has done for you. Remember his faithfulness and rest in the finished work of Jesus. Now, the temptation, however, when we do that, is that we can be tempted to take his mercy for granted. The concern is that we might mistake the grace shown to us as somehow him being indifferent to our sin, as somehow, well, your sin doesn't really matter because you're forgiven. You know, don't don't worry about it. Sin's no big deal. God's going to forgive you anyway. In some ways, that seems to be Samuel's concern in this passage. He doesn't want God's people to think that even though he is encouraging them to move forward and to serve the Lord and to remember all of his faithfulness, he doesn't want them to think he's excusing their sin or making light of their uh, wickedness. Therefore, a necessary and vital component of repentance and renewal is that we must acknowledge our sinfulness. This is the third step of repentance. This is the third step of returning to the Lord. We must acknowledge our sin now we can look at a number of different places in in chapter 12 and in some ways like think about the experience of the people of israel in this moment right samuel says let's go renew the kingdom and he has these encouraging things to say about god's faithfulness but yet over and over and over again he keeps saying but remember you were really wicked to ask for a king <laughs> don't forget how wicked you are by the way you were really wicked to ask for a king and it seems strange to us, but it's what he does. Let's look at it in the text. So first you see chapter 12, verse 12. We saw this earlier. When you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. This is a rebuke from Samuel. He is saying, you rejected God who was your king to ask for another king. And you can just hear the people thinking, Samuel, this is supposed to be an encouraging speech. You've told us this over and over again. We get it. Why do you have to keep reminding us of how bad we are? But as if that wasn't harsh enough, it it gets worse. It gets worse. We saw this, verses 16 to 18, right? Samuel is calling upon God's supernatural, miraculous confirmation of his words. He says, is it not wheat harvest today? I'm going to ask God, it's in the thunder and the rain, to prove something to you. And what is it that Samuel wants to prove to them... In verses 16 through 18, look at verse 17. I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and asking for yourselves a king. Listen to our modern minds. This just this seems excessive. Here's the people trying to move forward. It's clear that Samuel wants them to move forward. And you can almost hear like a modern person in this context would say, okay, but why do you have to keep reminding me of how bad I am? That doesn't make me feel good, Samuel. You're hurting my self-esteem, Samuel. Why are you beating me up, Samuel? Let me move on. Why do you keep tearing me down? Look, they're terrified at this point. God has sent the thunder and the rain to prove how wicked they were to ask for a king. And it says they greatly feared in verse 18. And so verse 19, they say, Look, Samuel, pray for us that, that we don't die in this evil that we have done to ask for a king. I think a modern pastor, and I would lock myself in here, we are tempted to, if someone is so overwhelmingly repentant and they're they're fearful of death because of the wickedness of what they have done. Like it's we want to immediately just say, Look, say something like, It's okay. God loves you. There's there's restoration of hope in Jesus. And we ought to say that. Samuel says, yeah, do not be afraid. Now, punctuation is really important here. It does not say, do not be afraid you've done all this evil. It says, do not be afraid, semicolon. You have done all this evil. Let me remind you one more time of how evil and wicked you were to ask for a king. Right? It's abundantly clear that Samuel doesn't want them to just to just move on. Samuel's not saying, look, you made a mistake. It's okay. Just move forward. No, he's saying, you need to own your sin. Samuel doesn't just, you know, take the, the you know, the advice to Taylor Swift. He doesn't say, just shake it off, right? You don't need to be afraid. Just don't worry about it. No, what does he say? No, you're wicked. You are evil. You were wrong. You were sinful. You need to know that, people of God. He refuses to downplay it just to make people feel better about themselves. He refuses to downplay it just to protect their self-image. And so there that third time, he reminds them of just how wicked they were to ask for a king. Yet he says, do not be afraid. Now, how can that be? Because friends, if someone said, I'm going to bring the thunderstorm to show you how wicked you are, and that happens, and then they say to me, but don't be afraid. I would really struggle to figure out how that can be true. But listen, this is, this is where we have to grasp the character of God and the truth of the good news of the gospel. Our fear of judgment cannot be removed by downplaying our sin. Our fear of judgment is not removed by downplaying our sin, but only, but only by grasping the abundance of the gracious mercy of God. That is the only way we can deal with our sin. Or as John Newton put it, the converted slave trader who wrote the well-known hymn Amazing Grace, he said, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. That and that alone is how we cannot be afraid and yet admit that we have, in fact, done all this evil. You see, our temptation is to simply make ourselves feel better, to forgive ourselves by excusing away our sin. God's path to forgiveness, however, is for us to be brutally honest about our sins before him to confess them to him, to repent to them. It's why 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 does not say if we hide our sins, if we lie about our sins, if we downplay our sins, he'll forgive us. No, it says if we confess them, if we acknowledge them, if we are honest about them, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and restore us into fellowship with him. Jesus didn't die a bloody, excruciating death, bearing the wrath of God in our place because your sins were no big deal. No, the, the suffering of the cross shows us just how wicked and evil our sins are. Therefore, when we make light of our sins, we make light of the cross. But when we own them and we acknowledge them and we acknowledge that we have sinned against the living and the holy God, then the cross and what Christ did comes into a clearer focus. And we can see why he had to suffer And we are then overwhelmed by the grace and mercy he has shown us in the cross. So yeah, Samuel wants the people to know how wicked their request was because he doesn't want them to keep repeating their sin. He doesn't want them to think sin is no big deal. But he very much also desires and God desires for us when we return to him to flourish and to serve the Lord faithfully. And so that brings us to the fourth piece of repentance that we must follow the Lord in obedience. Look at verses 14 and 15 with me. He says to them, if you fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord, your God, it will be well. He says, look, now is the time to move forward in obedience. Acknowledge your sin, put it to death, and move forward in obedience to the Lord, and it will be well with you. The next verse he says, if you don't do that, it will not be well with you or your king. You need to move forward in obedience to the Lord. He says this again in verse 20, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And then he says it again in verse 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. There's a dangerous cliff on both sides of this issue. One side of the dangerous cliff is to be completely indifferent to your sin to take them lightly to say, Hey, I messed up, but I'm going to keep serving Jesus. No big deal. Don't worry about it. Don't deal with your sins at all. That's, that's a dangerous side of the cliff to fall off of. But here's the other dangerous side. I am so sinful and guilty and shameful before the Lord. I've committed such egregious, terrible, awful sin that I am useless for his kingdom for the rest of my life. That's a lie from the pit of hell. You see, Samuel says, you did sin, but God is ready to forgive you and to show you mercy. So get up and start serving him faithfully from this day forward. You see, this is where the mercy of God and the good news of the gospel comes into play. We can confess and acknowledge the seriousness of our sin, but then we lay it at the foot of the cross and give all praise to Jesus for taking the condemnation that we deserved in our place and because he has already paid for our sin, because we are already justified, declared to be righteous through the righteous life of Christ, given to us and imputed to us, because our sins have been dealt with on the cross, that when we confess our sins to the Lord, we can get up in the freedom of forgiveness and mercy and grace of Jesus and serve the Lord with joy and happiness. That's what Samuel is calling his people to. That's what God is calling us to. And that guards us from Samuel's other warning to not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver because they are empty. Look, this world turns to all kind of empty things to deal with their sin. And we are reminded there's only one way to deal with our sin. is to be honest about it before the Lord be forgiven in the good news of the gospel and in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And there's no idol worship. There's no self-harm. There's no therapy. There's no counseling. There's no conversations we can have. There's no medicine we can take or anything else in the universe that can cleanse you from the guilt of your sin except the cross of Jesus Christ. And listen, I'm not saying that medicine's bad. I'm not saying that counseling is bad. I'm just saying it will not remove your guilt from you. Only Jesus can do that. And it is only in Christ that we can get up and walk in obedience for the glory of Jesus. If you are ready to repent of your sin and turn away from it and turn toward Jesus, then Jesus is ready to accept you. Jesus is ready for you to return. Jesus is ready for you to serve him for the glory of his name. Do not be afraid. You have done evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Serve the Lord with all your heart. And then finally, I just want to look at verse 25, this final step to remember that we must fear the Lord. We must fear the Lord. You see that in verse 24, fear the Lord and serve him faithfully. But here, let's just take a brief moment to focus on verse 25. This is the final warning that Samuel gives the people. If you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. This is astonishing to think about because Samuel is saying, your fear of the nations drove you to ask for a king to protect you. And here Samuel is saying to them, if you do wickedly, there is no king that will protect you. If you refuse to obey me, it doesn't matter what human is sitting on the throne. I will sweep you away, both you and your king. And so Samuel is saying, get your fear in the right place. Don't fear the nations around you. Fear the living God, (laughs) because no king can protect you from his wrath when it comes. In other words, a king is an empty thing if the Lord is not with him. It's why King David says to us in Psalm 20, verse 7, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it's why Jesus says to us in Matthew 10, verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can both destroy, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is Jesus saying to us what Samuel is saying to God's people. Get your fear in the right place. Do away with fear of man and be sure your fear is directed to God. This is a healthy fear. Samuel told God's people to not be afraid and to fear the Lord, right? There's a, there's a fear that renders us useless and a fear that keeps us from running toward Jesus. There's a fear that keeps us from serving him. That's an unhealthy fear. But there is a fear that protects us and guards us from sin. There's a fear that helps keep our eyes on Jesus. And in that sense, we are to fear the Lord so that we don't return to the sin that we just came out of. So brothers and sisters, praise be to God that we are not left in our sin. <laughs> There is a way we can deal with our sin. There's a way we can get up and walk in obedience to the Lord and be useful for Him and for His kingdom. We need we need leaders. We need pastors who are willing to speak that truth to us. We need to remember God's faithfulness, His long-suffering, His patience, as evidence throughout history in His Word. When people return to Him and call out to Him, He shows them mercy over and over and over again. Don't make light of your sin. It is wicked. It is evil. Own it and lay it at the foot of the cross. Lay it at the foot of the cross and get up and serve the Lord with all your heart, with all your strength, and with all your might. Rest in his grace and walk in a healthy fear of the Lord for the glory of his name. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for Jesus. We're thankful that you have made a way that we can experience forgiveness and freedom. Father, I pray that you would help us when we are struggling with sin in our lives to to not run from you, to not make light of our sin, to not hide from you, to not excuse our sin. Instead, Father, I pray that you would help us to to own our sin, to be honest about our sin, help us to find people who will speak truth to us about our sin and point us to your faithfulness and your truth. And Father, I pray for all of us that you would give us a daily desire to confess our sins before you, to be honest before you so that we can experience the forgiveness you offer us through the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And so Father, I pray that no man or woman in this room would be rendered useless for your kingdom because they are so overwhelmed with guilt and shame, but instead that you would free us to be honest and confess our sins and experience the forgiveness of Jesus Christ.